I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome, everyone. This is Cal Raustiala, co-host of the American Society of International Law's International Law Behind the Headlines podcast. And I'm really pleased to have as our guest today, Ona Hathaway, who is both uh, an outstanding scholar and a longtime ASIL board vice president in various other positions. Ona's been around ASIL, as I have for a long time. And uh, I'm really happy to have her on today to talk about a project that she has with some colleagues. I'm going to let her explain a little bit more in a moment. But one that I thought would be interesting to listeners of this podcast uh, and a topic that I imagine we'll be hearing more about. So, um, so Ona, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Cal. Yeah, great. So maybe you could say a little bit about what you're doing. I'll just briefly introduce it by, by mentioning that what, what drew me to ask you to come on the podcast was I read in draft uh, a paper that you have with Jack Goldsmith and Kurt Bradley on non-binding agreements. And while it's an important topic that other people have covered, the three of you have kind of done an unusual thing, which is uh, sue the government over uh, the transparency or lack of transparency around these agreements. And you've also done a kind of deeper dive than most people have in the past into the empirics of them. So, um, so with that just teaser, I'll let you say a little bit more about what you're doing. Yeah, um, maybe what I'll do is back up a little bit and say how we came to this project, because that might be interesting to your listeners. So we wrote an article that was published in the Harvard Law Review last year about executive agreements. And executive agreements, as most listeners to this podcast probably know, are agreements that are made um, by the president, either under his own constitutional authority or with authority granted in advance by Congress through statute. And these are binding international agreements. Um, hundreds of them are made uh, every year. And there's a whole regulatory regime set up for this. So um, there's a requirement under something called the CASE Act that when these are negotiated, um, that there has to be notification to the State Department. And then once the text is finalized and the U.S. has signed off on it, it has to be reported to Congress um, within 60 days of the U.S. entering into the agreement. So there's this whole elaborate process, lots of regulations, I'm just um, skimming over it. But in the process of, of studying that, so the argument we made in this previous article is that those transparency requirements are not always being adequately followed. And we made some suggestions for improving those transparency requirements, including publication and, and a better job of actually tracking these agreements. But in the process of doing that, we realized in a way we were, we were focusing on maybe even the wrong thing because there's all these binding agreements being made, but there's a whole nother body of agreements or even less transparent and those are what are sometimes referred to as non-binding agreements. And so we got interested in kind of drilling into these, these so-called non-binding agreements, kind of finding out what, what was going on with them and, and, um, and trying to excavate as much as we could. And what it held, I've been interested in non-binding agreements for a really long time. And, and what has held me back from writing about it in the past is that there's, there's just so little information about these agreements out there. I mean, there's there's definitely been some writing and it's and it's great writing, but almost all of us, when we write about it, have had to say, 
don't really know exactly what's going on with these. We know they exist. We have a few examples of them we can all point to, but we don't really know exactly what's going on. And so Kurt and Jack and I coming off of this other project thought, well, maybe what we should do is just try to figure that out. And we realized the only way to do that was to basically FOIA as many U.S. agencies as we could to try and get our hands on as many of these non-binding agreements as we could, um, and then um, sue the few that refused to respond. And so that's what we did. So we FOIA'd about 25 agencies, got um, pretty good responses from a number of them. We're still in progress, kind of back and forth with, with some of them still a year later. But a few of the agencies just were completely non-responsive, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of State. And so those are the three that we've sued. Um, and so that, that's where we are. Well, that's a, that's a great overview. And I'll just underscore something which I think is implicit in what you said, which is that when we look at the universe of agreements, and again, there's a lot we don't know, and I think you're absolutely right, that the empirics of, of non-binding agreements as well as other forms of agreements are not as well understood as they should be. But when we look, especially in the post-war period, one of the things we see is, is executive agreements, of course, have enormous increase uh, and really are the lion's share. Uh, depends on how you define the different subcategories. And then non-binding agreements, likewise, a huge category, a growing category. And if I recall, you show that uh, you have some pretty good statistics, preliminary statistics in the paper showing the growth. Um, so it might be interesting to say a little bit, if you can, it's always hard to convey that in a in a podcast versus a chart, but just what's the kind of pattern that you've observed over time? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. It's, so what we are finding, both through the data that we're collecting and through um, interviews that we've been doing um, with, uh, with U.S. officials, as well as with um, legal advisors from around the world, really, because part of this is also a comparative project, is a general consensus, as well as some empirical evidence um, that this has been a growing phenomenon. So in the data, um, and, and we're still kind of midstream in terms of producing the data, but at least in this kind of early stage, the data that we've collected su is suggestive that there has been a pretty substantial increase in the use of non-binding agreements and particularly at the agency level. So one of the things that we're really interested in is we have as a category sort of these high profile agreements that, that um, many people could point to, like the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that sometimes referred to as the Iran nuclear deal. That's an example of a, of a non-binding and those are kind of pretty well known. Um, uh, what we're kind of interested in is a bread and butter of, of non-binding agreements, and that tends to be on the agency-to-agency -agency basis, much less flashy, much less likely to be in the news. And those agreements seem to have been growing considerably. And there's, there's two reasons we think that that's the case. One is just in the data we've collected thus far, both through the FOIAs um, and through publicly available information um, the evidence seems to suggest that there's a there's a pretty substantial uptick in non-binding agreements. And then just all the interviews we've done. So in a lot of the agencies that we FOIA'd, um, in many cases, they were willing to also talk with me about their experiences and their use of non-bindings versus bindings. And interestingly, in most of the agencies, it's the same people that are negotiating both the binding executive agreements and the non-bindings. Um, and talk to them about, you know, why they're choosing one or the other. And they 
often express the experience that they're relying more on non-binding agreements. And then we heard the same thing um, in talking to legal advisors and academics from many other countries. They're, they're similarly finding that non-bindings are becoming increasingly the way in which they are making their international agreements, which of course makes sense because the U.S., when it's making international agreements, is making it with an international partner. Um, and, so, and so there's reason to believe, and we're still trying to kind of nail this down and provide as much empirical evidence as we can for it, but there's reason to believe that this is really a growing phenomenon um, and therefore one that's especially interesting to try to understand. Great, great. I want to get to the question of hypotheses about why, but just implicit in what you just said, is it the case that an agreement must be, uh, let's say a bilateral agreement, non-binding for both sides, uh, or can it somehow differ amongst the parties? And I have a particular example in mind, but I'm just curious how you would answer that as a general matter. You know, it's something we've been actually trying to find out more about. Um, so, uh, one of the ways in which, so there are different ways of assessing whether something is a non-binding agreement, but, but one of the most common ways of assessing whether it's a non-binding agreement is the intent of the parties. And generally, the expectation is that there will be a shared intent or expectation that the agreement is non-binding. And that is reflected in the language that's generally used. And in fact, the State Department has a whole set of um, recommendations for agencies, kind of words to avoid um, to, to make clear the intent to make an agreement um, non-binding as opposed to binding. But we have found some examples where there's ambiguity or differences of opinion about whether an agreement is binding or non-binding. And one thing we're puzzling over, frankly, is, um, is this a big problem? Or is this a good thing? So the, the problem could be if one side thinks it's binding and the other doesn't, and that raises different expectations on each side as to what it is exactly they've agreed to, I think there's an argument to be made that that's actually quite problematic. Um, and that would argue for clarity and, and more agreement as to what constitutes a non-binding versus binding agreement. There could be some instances where strategic ambiguity is a good idea, and, and that's something we're still trying to puzzle over. It's like, when might that be the case, and should there be space maintained for that kind of strategic ambiguity? But, but um, generally speaking, um, it's pretty clear both sides intend an agreement to be non-binding or binding. Um, so these are sort of edge cases where, where we see some disagreement or uncertainty um, uh, among the parties about, about the status of an agreement. Do you also have a view, and uh, you can sort of convey if there's differences, obviously, amongst uh, your various authors, but do you have a view on another conceptual question, which is, is, is it an all or nothing question with regard to an agreement, or might it be the case that there's a binding agreement with some non-binding elements within it? In yeah, that's words. a really important distinction. Yeah, that, so absolutely, there can be there can be binding, there can be agreements to kind of mix the two, definitely. Um, and and there's a kind of interesting example of that in the Paris Agreement um, on climate change. So so parts of that agreement are binding um, and done as essentially a successor agreement or a, a follow-on agreement to um, prior binding international agreements, which allow for follow-on agreements. Um, and then parts of it, um, including the, the targets, are done as, as non-binding um, targets. And so that's a good example of kind of a mix of the two. 
And there, there are several instances where, where there's sort of um, a mix of binding and non-binding elements within a single agreement. So you're absolutely right to say it may not always be the case that it's, that it's appropriate to refer to an entire agreement as a non-binding or a binding because a single agreement could include both. And so conceptually, going back to your point about intent, which I agree with, uh, we would want to, in an ideal world, be able to ascertain the intent of the parties, not only with regard to the entire agreement, which might be manifest in the language that was used, the question of whether there are entry into force procedures or various other technicalities, um, but also how they actually word it. And I know in some cases they're quite clear. The Helsinki Final Act, I think, says quite clearly, this is not binding. Um, but that's that's not, I think, a typical way of manifesting. But so we'd want to know that, but then we would also want to know in a particular provision, like in your Paris example, what was the intent of the parties to that provision? Is that a fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's what makes this so complex. Um, and that's actually why I think it's interesting to begin to understand this more fully and how non-binding agreements and portions of agreements are being used and what expectations are of countries and how how do we um, make clear kind of what, what states are up to um, and so that when they conclude agreements, they each know what the expectations are. And I think one of the, one of the recommendations we make kind of builds on, on, on exactly this issue and tries to figure out how do we, how do we build clarity about whether an agreement or a portion of agreement, as you point out, um, is intended to be binding or non-binding, and and how do we avoid um, uncertainty that might that might lead to later disagreements and conflict between the the parties to the agreement? Yeah, I mean, I think in a multilateral context, it seems especially hard. It just makes me think of the debate over reservations, and there's so many ways in which we can run into real challenges in ascertaining intent over specific provisions or even sub-provisions. I'll admit I'm a little bit skeptical on this particular point. I recognize I'm an outlier um, on this view, but I, I am not sure that I agree with the point that you made earlier that agreements can have non-binding elements within them. I realize um, Paris is a pretty good example of that, but I tend to take the view that the agreement as a whole is the question. Um, and some things are simply deliberately vague or allow for best efforts or something of that nature. Um, but that's a that's a kind of deep question that maybe we can get into more in a little bit. But I think as a practical matter, it is challenging. And so one, I guess one question that follows from that is, are most non-binding agreements, or can we say anything about whether they tend to be bilateral or multilateral? And then is there a different process for kind of ascertaining their bindingness? Yeah, the vast majority of, of non-binding agreements, uh, at least that we're finding, are bilateral. Um, so the vast majority of these are kind of just agency-to-agency -agency agreements to basically kind of do the work of the agency um, in collaboration with a foreign partner, um, sometimes to share information, sometimes to engage in kind of cooperative research projects, um, a whole variety of different kinds of, of collaboration and um, between agencies from, from different countries. And so part of what's so interesting about digging into this is just seeing how 
these how these agencies work together on a kind of day-to-day level and and the sharing of information and different kinds of projects they undertake collaboratively that that don't really make the headlines right so we all have read about the the big non-bindings the flashy ones the multilateral um, agreements that 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 we're all debating and discussing but most of us haven't um, read an agreement between the FAA and its counterpart in Canada on um, de-icing procedures, <laughs> um, but those are really important. You know, when you fly and and you and and you're taking advantage of the fact that we know a lot more about de-icing and how to do it well because of this collaboration, we're all better off for it. So these things do make our lives better in ways that that on the whole we tend not to appreciate or understand. So part of the interest in kind of digging into this is seeing seeing how that how that day-to-day diplomatic effort um, is undertaken and how non-bindings play a role in that. Yeah, I think your comments really highlight a couple of things that are important, which I had impressionistically believed, and it sounds like some of your more empirical work supports, which is one that these are often regulatory in nature. Um, Agencies, you know, have, there are many agencies that we don't associate with international affairs in a traditional way. Um, but they, the SEC, et cetera, you know, these kinds of agencies have international interests and they often manifest them through these kind of non-binding flexible agreements, which maybe this is a good segue into thinking about why they get used, but it does seem like one of the advantages is precisely that there's a lot of flexibility in them. And so when agencies are dealing with uh, a regulatory question and it's a, maybe an evolving one. Um, it's just simpler and easier. And especially if it's mostly about information sharing, it's not clear that bindingness would do a lot of work. But that's that's an impression that I have. I don't know if you agree or disagree or what your views are. Yeah, what what's fascinating about this is actually trying to dig into exactly those questions, which is sort of why would an agency prefer to use a non-binding versus a binding agreement? Um, and why have we seen the rise of of non-bindings versus bindings. And I think there's a lot to what you say in that flexibility is clearly a piece of it. One piece that I hadn't fully appreciated um, that that is clearly part of the driver is that there are a number of countries um, that have very stringent rules for binding international agreements that require a very extensive procedure for approval for binding agreements. And these countries find it much easier to do an agreement as a non-binding so a lot of the agencies I spoke with in the U.S. said, you know, one of the reasons we often are turning to non-binding is because our partners really prefer it. Because if we do it as a binding, it has to go through a pretty extensive approval process. It really slows it down. It means it's going to take a lot longer. It means it's a lot less flexible. Um, and doing it as a non-binding is just a lot simpler for our, for our foreign partners. And for us, it doesn't really make a huge difference because we, of course, have this Case Act process that um, actually makes it pretty easy to do binding executive agreements as long as there's pre-existing either statutory or constitutional authority. Um, so don't, we don't really mind doing it as a binding, but it's a lot easier for our partners to do it as a non-binding. And so that's what we do. And that that was sort of an unexpected finding. And that's part of why understanding the comparative um, and foreign law piece of this is actually pretty important. But there's a whole host of other reasons. I mean, I think part of it can be, and, and the piece of it we don't fully understand is the agencies that haven't disclosed to us. So we know through the FOIA litigation that um, the Department of Defense has um, identified 6,000 potentially responsive documents to our FOIA request Hmm. that they're fighting giving us. 
Um, what's in there? I, I don't know, but but um, it it is possible that um, that what is going on there is that part of what the Department of Defense may be up to, and I just don't know without seeing these agreements, is that doing agreements as non-bindings means they don't have to disclose to the State Department what they're up to. The CASE Act process requires not only reporting to Congress, but reporting um, and working through the State Department. So so maybe that's part of what's going on. Uh, Maybe that's part of the motivation for the Department of Defense. Um, hard to know again without actually seeing the agreements um, as to whether that might be the case. So there may be maybe a whole host of different kinds of motivations that are going on here that's different in different agencies um, and that's different across different different countries. Um, but uh, but yeah, certainly flexibility is a part of it, but I don't think that's the entirety of the story. Yeah, that's really interesting because it does seem, I mean, certainly keeping it See, it's not necessarily fully secret, though. The fact that they're fighting you on this in the way they are suggests they have they have some secrecy concerns. But keeping it from others does seem to be uh, an important motivation that, you know, I admit when I looked at these issues many years ago, I focused on regulatory, you know, regulatory agreements and and was kind of more thinking in terms of the development of regulatory networks in which non-binding agreements were a really important part of creating that that network and being able to 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 train and even export our regulatory models to other places. I think that's still a valid uh, understanding of what goes on in many agencies, but I don't know how well it applies to DOD. And so I'm really curious to see what you find there. And I think, uh, you know, I think you will, you will unearth a lot of interesting things if you're able to get your hands on even a fraction of that info that they're hiding. Yeah, that's exactly what we're, I'm hopeful about. And, and, I, and I think you're absolutely right that, that the vast majority of these, um, at least so far that we've seen, are very much of the kind that you've just described, where uh, 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 the majority of them entail some form of information sharing. Um, a lot of them are really about regulatory um, collaboration and cooperation, sharing of um, resources. And in many cases for the U.S., as, as you rightly suggested an exporting of, of some of our regulatory models um, abroad. And, and that's, I think, in general, you know, a great thing um, and, and a really important part of, of what U.S. agencies can be doing and the non-bindings play, play a valuable role in that process. Um, but, but there are other things that may be going on as well. And, and part of what we're, we're aware of is that the agencies that have been most responsive at this early stage or that post their non-bindings online. So we also got a lot of these through just finding everything that we could that's publicly available. Those might look different from the ones that are, that are sort of more, more hidden away. Um, and so that's why we're really trying to pursue this litigation to try to get our hands on some of the, the agreements that... Um, that uh, agencies are a little bit more reluctant to disclose to see if there's something distinctive about those agencies, or maybe you know it's possible that they're effectively the same as 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 what we're seeing um, from these agencies that have been more more agreeable to providing information. But I sort of suspect that that there might be some substantive differences. Right, right. I mean, there's certainly different cultures of classification in different parts of the government, and you know this is an area obviously you have interest in. Uh, as well, the kind of overclassification of things. And so while this isn't exactly the same question, it certainly has a family resemblance. And it, it also makes me think a little bit of the way in which the national security kind of architecture of, of this country, at least, 
you know, has developed in a way, arguably to avoid the Senate confirmation process. And so we have all kinds of positions and it's a pain to go through the Senate, especially now. And um, while this, again, doesn't map on perfectly to what you're saying, it is an example or it appears to be an example where we have formalized processes that can be cumbersome or our partners do. And so we create workarounds that achieve much of the same uh, ends without having all of the formalities. And when we're dealing with international agreements, you know, there's a very deep conceptual question of what difference does it really make, whether it's binding or not? And that's a really, uh, you know, it's a longstanding question. It's a deep question. It's not always obvious that it makes a big difference. And so that's why I think we may see some of this growth, uh, astounding growth, really, is that you can get to the same place much faster. Yeah, I think that's such an important observation. And and we note that here. And, you know, in this piece, I think we're not going to be able to delve fully into the implications of that. But we're already talking about a follow on article that will really try to dive into those deeper theoretical conceptual issues around does it really make a difference um, that it's binding or non-binding? What does it mean for something to be binding? I mean, there's there's a narrow legal answer to that question, which is um, uh, there are certain international legal doctrines that are triggered by binding international agreements that are not triggered by non-binding agreements. Um, and so it's not an internationally wrongful act to violate a non-binding agreement, whereas it is an internationally wrongful act to violate a binding agreement. So there, there are some some kind of narrowly understood legal answers to that but but that's that's the kind of surface answer and the deeper the deeper question i think is but really what does that matter um and, and how does it really change behavior especially when we look in the united states and we have the idea of binding article 2 treaties that are non self executing right. um, meaning that they can't be used in us courts they can't be enforced they can't be a source of a cause of action in us court unless there's implementing legislation. So really, what is the difference between a non-self-executing Article II treaty and a non-binding agreement? Part of the answer might be that a a non-self-executing Article II treaty is still binding on the political branches. But if the political branches don't believe that that's the case, um, and nobody can make them because they can't sue them in court, then realistically, honestly, it's just the same. Um, and then why, if that's true, would you ever go through the trouble of doing an Article II treaty where you have to get two thirds of the Senate, which these days is pretty much impossible? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so that these is are, one, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go. No, I was just going to say that is one, putting aside your point, I totally agree with that. Senate, Senate approval is so difficult right now and has been for a while. That's one argument for why it is different is that it does evidence a commitment beyond the president, beyond the executive branch, a kind of nationwide commitment of some kind. And maybe that's more meaningful as a result, but that's not always the case. And we know that's actually pretty rare in practice. So yeah, I think you're raising a bunch of really, you know, they are, they are longstanding questions, um, but we still don't have great understanding. And empirically, I think the situation in 2021 is pretty different than it was in 1961, let's say. Um, you know, as we were standing up a lot of Article II treaties and institutions, it's a pretty different world. So, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot that we can learn about that. Yeah, I mean, just to build on that point, it is a very different world. And I think there are two, two things that have been happening that are kind of colliding with one another. So one is um, 
over the course of the post-war era, there has been kind of concerted decline in the um, enforceability of Article II treaties in court and a kind of growing sense that, that the president, for instance, can unilaterally withdraw from Article II treaties, which while courts have never um, affirmed that um, and the Senate still formally opposes the idea the president can unilaterally withdraw from Article II treaty, functionally, it just happens to be the case that that is true because um, courts refuse to address the issue. They've declared a political question. Um, and so functionally, um, it's, it's possible for presidents to do that. Um, and, and with the, then the Medellin decision and the rise of non-self-executing doctrine, um, so that's a kind of uh, decline in the sort of value and effectiveness of binding international agreements on the one hand. Um, and then on the other hand, the rise of this increasing use of non-bindings, um, not just at the agency level, but at the kind of high profile level. Um, and, and non-bindings that, that are doing more and more ambitious things. And so it, when you see these two, um, these two kind of trends um, running into each other, um, you see that, that it's likely to be the case that we're going to increasingly move towards non-binding agreements. You can get a lot of what you want uh, from a non-binding. And honestly, there's not a whole lot more to be gotten these days from a binding international agreement, because in either case, you probably are going to need implementing legislation to make it actually effective at the domestic level. And so I think I think these are, we have to kind of take a step back and look at the whole picture and see non-binding agreements in light of this broader set of trends. And when we do that, we can see it's it's not a big surprise that that these have become more common and that states are increasingly relying on them because they're very attractive and they can get almost everything they want from these non-bindings with a lot less trouble. Yeah, they do They do make a lot of sense. And I think especially when, this is an old argument, but I think still a valid one, when we're dealing with commitments that are uncertain in terms of their impact, um, I think of climate change and the Paris Agreement as a good example of this, we may really be advantaged from a policy point of view by using non-binding agreements because it allows more forms of ambition that countries may, not only this country, but but other partners, may be really nervous about if they knew that they would be subject to um, to those various legal triggers you talked about or you know simply want to make sure they're in compliance. And if they have a little more wiggle room, they may be willing to try harder. And so that's a difficult and empirical, ultimately empirical question about whether that really works. But that's one reason to think that this form of flexibility is advantageous. Um, not only is it happening more for reasons that we can explain, but we might even want it to happen more. Um, but that's that's sort of specific to certain types of agreements. But in any event, this is a really terrific project, and I'm glad to hear that you're going to keep going with it. And, and I look forward to, uh, to reading and hearing more about it. Thank you so much. Thanks for the chance to talk about it. Yeah, terrific. Thanks, Donna.